Welcome to Your Torah, a 36-week journey into the world of the 63 books of the Mishnah, 18 minutes at a time. A project of Jofa UK, designed as a special invitation to engage in Torah and make it yours. If you'd like to sponsor or dedicate an episode of Your Torah, please get in touch via our website, which can be found at ukjofa.org. Hi, my name is Aviva Richmond, and I'm on the faculty at the Hadar Institute in New York City. I fell in love with learning Mishnah when I was about nine years old, and some of my favorite memories of learning Mishnah are from sitting around the table with my dad and my sister in Baltimore on long Shabbat afternoons in the spring and summer, studying Pirkei Avot, the Ethics of the Fathers. This is a podcast about Mishnah Machshirin, a tractate that is part of the order of Mishnah called Taharot, about laws of purity. This all might sound very obscure, but I think a lot of it is more relatable if you think about how people today intuitively relate to germs. In this particular tractate, the rabbis are trying to figure out what makes an object susceptible to impurity. And it turns out that food items only become susceptible to impurity when they have become wet. To go back to the germs analogy, think about how people are often more concerned about germs if something wet falls on the ground, but don't care quite as much if it is something dry. For the rabbis, this is based on a passage in the Torah in the book of Vayikra, chapter 11, verses 34 to 38. I'm just going to read a little bit of that. Mikol ha'ochel asher ye'acher, any food item that can be eaten, asher yavo'alav ma'im, when water comes upon it, yitma, it can become impure. V'chol mashke asher yishateh b'chol kli, and any drink that can be drunk in a vessel, yitma, can become impure. The passage later specifically says that there must be an act of wetting for an item to be susceptible to impurity, when water is put on a seed. Then it can become impure if it contacts an impure thing, like a certain kind of dead bug or whatever else. This phrase is passive, yutan, when water is placed, but it is written in the Torah without a vav and looks like the active form of the word, yitain when a person puts water on the item. This tiny grammatical point, the ambiguity of active versus passive wedding, has huge implications in the Mishnah. The most exciting part of Tractate Machshirin is that it draws a distinction based on how a food item got wet. If a person wanted it to get wet, then it is legally considered huqshar, ready or susceptible to impurity. But if it got wet against a person's will, then it is not legally considered susceptible to impurity. And this is all based on the words in the verse, v'chiyutan, and that ambiguity between passive and active. The very first Mishnah assumes this distinction between desired and not desired wedding, and states a more complex law based on that. Kol ma'ashke she'tchilato baratzon, afapisha'in sofo baratzon, any liquid, whether in the beginning it was desired, but maybe at the end it wasn't desired, or at the beginning it wasn't desired, but at the end it was desired, that counts as making something wet or susceptible to impurity. If at any point in the process a person wanted the food item to be wet, even if at the beginning or the end, they change their mind, it still legally counts as being wet. And this is contrasted 
with liquids that are already impure that make something impure, leratzon vishelo leratzon, whether or not a person wanted the item to become wet. Got it? If a neutral liquid touches a food item, it only makes that item susceptible to impurity if there was some level of intent, will, or desire at any point in the wetting process. But if an already impure liquid touches a food item, then it automatically becomes impure, regardless of a person's intent. This Mishnah is one example many point to as evidence of the rabbi's focus on the interiority of a person, the thoughts in their inner mind, as carrying halachic significance. This is, on the one hand, amazing. It opens up an approach to humanity and subjectivity that is much more complex and nuanced. It is also quite tricky to regulate. How can any external observer know the inner intents of an actor? Does the importance of intention automatically create a system where the main authority of regulation is God, since only God knows one's inner intentions? Or are there ways in which people can also judge whether a particular action happened in accord with or against one's will? Much of the tractate goes on to discuss a myriad of specific cases and whether they should be treated as intentional or unintentional wedding. I will give a brief overview of the main content of each chapter now. Chapter 1 deals with a number of cases where a person directly or indirectly causes water to fall from an object onto food items, and rules on whether these do or do not render those items susceptible to impurity, based on whether this seems like a case where a person did want that water to come out or not. So this includes shaking water off of trees or stalks of produce. One of the most intriguing examples of a contextual and subjective law is in the last Mishnah. When a person buries fruits in water so they won't be stolen by thieves, this is not considered an intentional act of wedding, since it was really due to duress because of the thieves. The Mishnah tells a story where this actually happened. People hid their fruit in water to avoid thieves, and the sages rendered the items pure. Chapter 2 deals with condensation coming from damp houses or water pits or caves or pools, and also sweat from people. The second half of the chapter gets into a tangent that is actually extremely fundamental in all of rabbinic law. It deals with a number of cases where there is a mixture, a mixed sample, and the halakha needs to make a ruling on the status of a particular item. This includes the case of a city where Jews and Gentiles live. May one use the bathhouses right after Shabbat, even though they were heated on Shabbat? What is the status of items one might find in the market? Can they be presumed to be kosher? What is the status of an abandoned baby one might find and want to adopt? Should the baby be raised as Jewish or as a Gentile? The refrain in these Mishnayot is that one follows the majority. If there is an exactly even split, one follows the stricter ruling, Chapter 3 gets back to a number of specific cases of wedding, including a bag or barrel full of fruit placed by a river or other liquid, and the case of water that is sprinkled in the process of cleaning a dirt floor. We see the introduction of an emotional criterion. If a donkey driver's sack falls into the river when he is crossing the river, his happiness may be indication of his will, that he wanted that to get wet. But a minority position says that is not enough. He must perform an action such as flipping over the sack so the other side gets wet. 
in order to demonstrate that he did, in fact, want the items inside to get wet. The end of this chapter deals with the question of the agency of certain people in society who are generally not fully legally accountable for their deeds. The deaf-mute, before an era of sign language, the insane person, and the child. These people must do an action to clearly demonstrate their will, since they do not have full mental capacity from a legal perspective. Their intention alone is not enough. Chapter 4 deals with more specific cases, such as water dripping off the mouth or beard of a person who drank from a body of water, and water left on the hands of a person doing laundry, and many more. Chapter 5 again brings specific cases, such as water that drips off a roof onto fruits, and water that might splash off of parts of a boat. This chapter also includes one of the most controversial Mishnayot in the laws of purity, regarding liquid that is poured from one vessel into another vessel below, and whether the liquid remaining in the first, upper vessel, can become impure if the lower vessel was impure. Does impurity travel up through the stream of liquid? The Mishnah rules that this is only the case for very viscous substances like thick honey, where the liquid might bounce back up. This was one of the central debates among various Jewish sects in the times of the Second Temple, and seems to be listed as one of the reasons for Essene separatism from the Pharisees. While this might seem minor, it is a demonstration of how laws of purity affected people's everyday lives so much it could lead to great rifts when there were disagreements. The final chapter lists more cases, and also lists all of the liquids that count to render items susceptible to impurity. It isn't just water. It is seven liquids in total. Dew, water, wine, oil, blood, milk, and bee honey. These liquids also have secondary liquids associated with them, such as water from your eye being under the category of water. The chapter deals with some other bodily fluids. It closes with a discussion of human breast milk, which is unique in that it is a liquid that is automatically from the outset designated for human consumption. Here is one fun Mishnah that gets to the complexity of how the Mishnah defines intention. This is from chapter 5, Mishnah 2. Hashat al hamayim, if a person is swimming on the surface of the water. Hanitazin, the water that splashes off, enan b'chiyutan, does not render items susceptible to impurity. This seems to be because a person has no intention to make the water become detached from its source, the pool. But if a person intended to splash their friend, then it does render items susceptible to impurity. One who makes a bird in the water. Lots of interpretations of this phrase. It seems to refer to some kind of toy that was used in the water maybe some kind of reed pipe, or might be a game of blowing bubbles in the water and being in the shape of a bird. Hanitazin v'et sheba, the water that splashes from making the bird, or the water in the bird itself, this is either the water in the bubbles or the water inside the toy, enan b'chiyutan, do not render items susceptible to impurity. This Mishnah is a fun window into water sports, of the times of the early rabbis. It shows that being concerned about the particulars of Jewish law can coincide with having a lot of fun in the water. 
And it is a fascinating window into how the rabbis go about trying to figure out what a person's intention is. The very same splash of water could be insignificant or significant, depending on the context, whether a person is alone or playing in the water with a friend. Overall, Mishnah Machshimin gives us an opportunity to learn about some of the social historical realities of the Jewish people in the times of the Mishnah. On a more conceptual level, it is a chance to think about the connections or disconnect between action and intention, and invites us to be more aware of what our intentions are in various activities throughout our lives. This episode of Your Torah is brought to you by Jofa UK, in collaboration with women from around the world who all share a passion for Torah study. If you are enjoying Your Torah, consider sponsoring an episode. Find out more by visiting ukjova.org. Join the conversation on social media using the hashtag YourTorah. Thank you.